Uh, yeah, sorry, it's taking hey. so long. For podcasts, it's slightly different from TikTok that, you know, people are going to swipe after three seconds. <laughs> this is like the anti-TikTok. Is no, like- okay, so <laughs> you are talking to somebody who for the last five years, mm. I'm a real podcast nerd. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but so I listen to a lot of podcasts. A lot of people say, hey, why do podcasts? Why don't just put it into um, YouTube and then just, you know, just put a camera. I says. Hmm, I think I know a lot of people are doing that. Uh, I might later, but at this moment, I think I want to respect the art of podcast that is just podcast. listening. Yeah, People don't listen enough anyway. It takes a different discipline to just say, okay, I've got 30 minutes. I'm really either jogging or like I really have time, either in the toilet or I don't know what. Like, you know. It's a different discipline to listen only. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I listen to podcasts on directors. Obviously, that's what inspires me, like American ones. Uh. No, I think it's wonderful. So what kind of podcasts do you listen to? I'm very nerdy. Okay. Uh, so I like to listen to long podcasts. One of my favorite podcasts is this uh, podcast, Audible, and it's called uh, You Must Remember This. And basically... <laughs> It is a very, very well-produced, long-form okay. podcast. Mm. And it is about Hollywood in the turn of the century. Nice. So they have many different themes. They had one on Jane Fonda versus Jane Seberg. And it was amazing. And it and the research is very wonderful. It's very king, you know, which a lot of people will find boring. But yeah. I love it. And yeah. every <laughs> single podcast is slightly more than an hour. Wow. And then they had another wonderful series and it went up to something like 14 or 15 episodes, you know, wow. and it's called Dead, Dead Blonde. It's about all the tragic blondes in Hollywood from nice. Marilyn Monroe to, to Mae West, mm. you know, to Jean Harlow. And it traces the story of how they rose to fame, but how they couldn't handle it and then they eventually killed themselves or they died <laughs> or, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Don't you think that it's, it sounds like such a visual uh, topic, but yet, was it engaging enough for you to, to chase it? Oh my God, it's so engaging because it is the sort of podcast that is not an interview like this. Yep. Uh, you know, it is read. And you can see from the writing that it's just a very good writer. The podcast that I love is Modern Love, which is the one that, you know, the Amazon series is based on. So oh. I've been listening to Modern Love for the longest time and I modern see. love are essays and they're always read by um, actors mm. uh, and I would love to be able to do something like All that. Right. In fact, this uh, interviews or even uh, storytelling through the radio has been around forever. I mean, Singapore was late, I saw. I don't know where you yeah, know. Yeah, I know. Fusion, right? Yeah. Ready Fusion. Yeah, yeah, he would tell stories. Right? <laughs> yeah, he would just tell stories. Sometimes it's like, uh, you know, um, Journey to the West and yeah. And I still yeah, clips. Yeah, no, I, I love the Crown podcast yeah. as well. Yeah, because, yes, yes. Mm. Yeah, they will release the podcast in conjunction with the episode yes. that is going on. I mean, that's another dimension to um, a lot of things now. Like, you know, you love this series and then you can chase after it in different ways. Uh, there's behind the scenes, you can chase I after the it. Instagram. But podcast, I thought, was a little bit, you know, uh, uh, for fans. Like, you know, you want to yeah. spend time with them and you don't yeah. mind it to be long. It's not like in, in one minute you get everything. There are some people who are like that, that it's like, you know, anything beyond a minute I can't watch. But uh, there are also other people, maybe a bit older, like, that don't mind, like, you know, 
meandering uh, conversations like this. Oh, Marco Polo, also, I know that you were doing quite a few uh, Hollywood uh, productions. You and Yu Bing, as Yu Bing also, she was in quite a few Hollywood movies. Well, um, I don't think it's so much like movies, but for me personally, The Philanthropist, and then, and that was for uh, NBC. Mm. And then there were a few other international opportunities. Mm. But I would say that my foray, you know, into Los Angeles mm. really started with Crazy Rich Asians. Because even though Marco Polo mm. was for Netflix, mm. which is an international project, mm. but it was filmed in Malaysia. That's yeah. what you call the runaway production that, that started with the spaghetti westerns and all that, that they... It's a Hollywood production, but they actually do it somewhere else. So I think there are so many productions like that nowadays. Yep, yep. So, uh, Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yep. I would say I shy to call it my Hollywood um, journey. I want to be able, and I have been privileged to have the opportunity in the last five years to not just work in Hollywood, mm. but also in projects you know, all over the world. Mm. I mean, it was very wonderful to be in Vancouver, mm. let's call, yep. you know, for Kung Fu. And all these opportunities really came about after Crazy Rich Asians, which kind of really elevated the opportunities for Asian English-speaking actors, mm. I think. Okay. Yeah, and suddenly there were projects that were popping up all over the place. But, um, I mean, the I've been to the States for several festivals before. And yeah. um, they always talk about Asian, American Asian actors not getting breaks. So I'm sure even for a Singaporean Asian to go over there yeah. to, to compete, it must be yeah. really tough because there's, there's so many American Asian actors, I'm sure, that are, you know... Um, hustling and, and, you know, trying to get jobs. So it must be really tough to, to get the breaks, but you're saying Crazy Rich Asians open those doors. Yeah, because after Crazy Rich Asians, I had the opportunity to understand and educate myself mm. with regard to what being represented by an agent mm. and a manager is all about in the United States. Okay. And... Not only that, there were people interested in representing uh, me, mm. you know, which is wonderful. Okay. I took my time and out of my own wallet, mm. I learned and educated myself by meeting up with these people, mm. flying myself back to Los Angeles after the opening of Crazy Rich Asians mm. to understand what representation um, an agency means mm. in the Los Angeles way for an actor like me, like. Yep. And then um, after I found out about it, and after I talked to the people that were interested in representing me, I made a choice. Mm. And um, I went with my manager, who mm. is Sharon Vito from mm. Zero Gravity. Mm. And they are a management firm. Ozark is under them, you wow. know. So they have directors, writers, actors. Okay. <laughs> and she works with this agent. Mm. Uh, Gary Reitman mm. of um, GVA Talent. So she introduced me to Gary. And then after I met the both of them, very quickly I decided, yeah, they are the people for me. And so far I'm so, so happy 
with them. Okay, but just getting representation and then having managers and uh, agents. Um, after that, you did say it was also not you know um, just getting jobs the next day. So there was still a lot of auditions and all that. Yeah, but even before the auditions, in order to work in the United States, it's not enough to have a manager and an agent if you are a foreigner like me yep, because you need true. your um, O-1 visa. Mm-hmm. And I was very lucky because the O-1 visa is hinged on your letters of recommendation, the amount of press that you have, um, whether or not there are production companies that are willing to write a letter of intent, mm-hmm. meaning that they um, document that they are interested in using you. Um, mm-hmm. And on top of that, that you have to have um, an immigration lawyer wow. from the United States in wow. order to file everything for you. And all of that came about so easily for me. You know, and I, I say that with all humility because of Crazy Rich Asians, because it was a success. Mm. Um, so a letter of recommendation, for example, from Kevin Kwan mm. would hold a lot of clout because mm. of the success of Crazy Rich Asians. Yep. Um, and, you know, he was so generous and kind and one of the first people to give me a letter of recommendation, mm. as well as many of the other people, including John M. Chu or John Pernotti, you know, mm. Adele Lim. You know, all of them were attached to Crazy Rich Asians um, and, and they all were so generous in terms of writing uh, letters of recommendation for me. Mm. And also by that time, there were a few production companies that were interested in using me as an actor. And then there was so much press, you know, that yep. was documented for Crazy Rich Asians. And I had a wonderful immigration lawyer. And then they put everything together for me in double quick time. Mm. And then um, there is in the United States, and I'm sure many people have heard of this, the amazing casting season that is called pilot season where um, many pilots that are being commissioned Mm. will start to cast from August which is when Crazy Rich Asians open to November Mm. Uh, I not only got myself an agent I got myself a lawyer I got myself the visa Mm. and, and all of this cannot be done without my agent and my manager, okay? Um, They even introduced me to a property agent because um, they knew that in order to get me ready for pilot season, I needed to have a place to stay because I cannot keep flying in. If I'm serious about pilot season and getting cast, you need your visa and you need to be in LA during pilot season. Yep. Okay. So all those steps I feel are important. Okay, that sounds like a a whole new series of podcasts just to get those uh, processes through. <laughs> so let's talk about Crazy Rich Asians first. Now. So how, how did you get a job? Uh, from what I know is that there were casting auditions, not just in Singapore, there was almost every in Asia and also America, obviously. So how do you get the, the yeah, job? Yeah, I mean, actually it was so simple because I was um, called in to audition uh, Wendy Mm. And she is somebody that has cast for many other projects that I have done, not just on television, but uh, on film, you know, and even for Mediacorp Days. Mm. I don't know who hired her. I was asked to come in and take for her for the role of Constance Wu's mom. Mm. I did that take for her, not expecting anything. Yep. And before I knew it, 
I was shortlisted to mm. audition in front of John M. Chu himself. Mm. And then I did the second audition. I was told I got the role. So a lot of times with auditions, I always tell myself, do your best. But what is yours is yours. And what is not, mm. it's not. So that's how I got the role of Crazy Rich Asians. And I've only ever auditioned for that one role. Mm. Yeah, wow. so I never auditioned for any other role in Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah, because I, from what we heard is that there's quite a lot of like, okay, you try this role, try that role, try that. There was quite a lot of buzz. Uh, I, even I heard, you know, people were casting right. for Crazy and... Any experience shooting it in terms of like, uh, you know, was it very different from other productions? And you were shooting in KL in Singapore, right? Oh, I shot in Penang, oh, uh, Penang KL right. and Singapore. I've not had many opportunities uh, to play, um, uh, to, to be in a film. Mm. So I went in there with very little expectations in terms of what all of this was going to be about mm. I just like earlier on in the podcast went in as prepared and as open-minded as possible yep. uh, working with a whole bunch of people mm. including Constance who played my own daughter and was in every scene with me not knowing anybody and it was very very wonderful to be in a project like that the way everything was organized was also very smooth mm. and I liked that Mm. But I have to say that even when I'm filming the scene, I had no idea what the eventual film Results. was going to be like. Okay. And I was fully prepared that none of my scenes would make it. The film script is quite different from the novel. Okay. All three of which I read many years ago when it first came out. I was just trying to do the best that I could. I enjoyed it tremendously. Mm. And I was very, very pleasantly surprised by what I saw in the end. Yeah. Is it different from the script, the final result? Um, no, not really. No. Mm. Okay. Uh, I mean, not, not for my character. Mm. I mean, all my scenes were in, you know, <laughs> but you never know uh, with a film. I, I know it's hard, but you also cannot keep worrying about that. I'm not saying it's easy, but it is always a reality that what you shoot may not make it into the film. It's true. I mean, uh, yeah, whatever serves the film the best. And mm. ultimately, um, the control is not in the actor's yep. hands. And sometimes for a lot of films, uh, it's just because of the duration. You know, it's like, uh, maybe the producers just say, that, okay, I need it at 80, you know, or like 90. And then your film is yeah. finally cut nicely at 120. And then you got just no yeah. choice. Yeah. You know, so yeah. you can't be too precious about... You have to accept. And yeah. you have to go in with this understanding of what it takes to make a good film. Yep. And you must do the best you can anyway. Mm. This is where what we were talking about earlier, mm. how to differentiate between the essential ego, mm. which is very necessary to get a good performance out of yep. yourself, and mm-hmm. enemy that is the ego. Yeah, you must trust, la, you know, that the control is not in your hands, la, you mm-hmm. know. So it's really a double-edged sword, la, this ego. Absolutely. Um, every film, I notice it's almost like, you know, you're, you're running a, you know, a horse race. You prepare the horse as best as you can, but then once the gun goes off, right, you're not sure how the horse is going to go to the finish line. So, but for this I one... I think that is such a good analogy. <laughs> That's such a good analogy. Yeah, but in, in, for this one, when you saw it before the launch, 
did you were you very sure that it was going to be a winner? No. Really? Wow. Yeah, really. So really. when when was it that not, you said that? Not wow. Even, not even in the walking the red carpet in in Los Angeles did we even that I I only can talk for myself. Okay. Yes, that mm. that I even think like oh this is gonna be a winner. No. Okay. No. So and in fact even after it was a success at the box office, mm. the way that it has made a difference yep. in Hollywood, mm. it's also so unexpected. Yeah. You know, mm. um, and because I spent so much time in Los Angeles mm. during Crazy Rich Asians and after that, mm. I had uh, a lot of opportunity to experience the conversations and all the different ways in which Crazy Rich Asians changed the way people looked at um, representation in mm. film, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. within the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's walk back. How was your Marco Polo experience? That was how, how long was the shoot for you? It went on for several months because it, unlike a film, mm. um, it was a 20-episode yeah. And it was uh, two thing. seasons, yeah. Okay, I was only in the first season. Oh, oh, you died. Right, yeah, right, because right. if you remember, yeah, <laughs> if you remember, oh, you God. know, and th- this is a spoiler alert yeah. for anybody that is intending to watch Marco yeah, Polo, yeah, yeah. which is still mm. on Netflix, by sorry, the way. Sorry, sorry. Yep. Um, the entire Song Dynasty with oh. Chin Han, mm. my fellow yeah, Singaporean actor, in the first season, we were wiped out. The experience was beautiful mm. because... Again, I think what I got out of it was how well-oiled the machinery was, how humble the showrunner, John Fusco, Mm. and how he ran his team. Mm. It is a costume drama, and for anybody that's seen Marco Polo, you will see that the amount of extra work that period drama... John Fusco ran the Marco Polo set like a country on its own. Mm. And the country was divided in into many different groups of people and he motivated every single one of them. The stunt people and they needed a space, they needed equipment, they needed time Mm. for not just choreography Mm. but also conditioning to Mm. condition and train actors. You know, down to details like so many of the actors had to watch their diet because like Olivia, you know, you have to do a lot of training, you have to do a lot of fighting and Mm. it takes such a toll on your physicality. Mm. And until today, I remember Kraft Hut, you know, in Marco Polo is like one of the best because they needed to provide the sort of food that many of these athletes uh, or some people needed to charge their bodies. And they needed to also keep many of the actors in a particular shape Mm. um, because it was going on for such a long time. The Singaporean actors who had regular roles like me, Mm. I would live in Singapore. And mm. we would shoot in Johor. Mm. And so every time I had to shoot, they would send a car. You, we have to go through the causeway every time you shoot. Yeah. Never once was a car late. Never once did we arrive late. Everything was planned so well. I thought everybody you know? was held up in some hotel in JB. So if you had to shoot for a day, mm. right, yep. they will hold the hotel for you for three days. Wow. You see, okay. this is how they plan. <laughs> Because just in case that something happened mm. and you, you know, they couldn't finish your scene mm. on a day, at least they have another two days that I you see. can, that you will be available. The other thing that was really wonderful about it was that from the time that you signed the contract, 
they gave me, and because I was a regular character in mm. practically every single episode, yep. they gave you all 20 episodes beautifully bound, you know, in a whole giant Bible. Mm. And they just give it to you. And you can read all 20 episodes and know where your character is going mm. before you shoot. Wow. They don't so, change so the you, scripts? Oh, yes, they do. But every time change is something that differs from set to set, mm. um, Marco Polo really respected the writers. Yep. So the writers are always on set. Mm. And there would be no script changes unless the writer approved it. Okay. Yeah. And not only that, there were two dialect coaches. Mm. They loved the Singaporeans yep. because the Singaporeans talked in a way that made the accent neutral mm. enough. They actually always use the Singaporeans and the way we speak English on Marco Polo as an example for <laughs> how to flatten your American accent if the okay. actor was American, mm-hmm. you know, or something like that. Yeah. Yep. To be on a big, long series like that. Mm. Uh, in such a wonderful role. I loved the role of the Empress Dowager, loved her dialogue, and I loved all my scenes with Chin Han. There were always so many things that we could play together with. He's such a wonderful actor, mm. and I always enjoyed myself so much with him. And and how was it working with the directors we, we, which we talked about earlier? Because some of them were on Game of Thrones, if I'm not wrong. I think altogether there were about eight different directors yeah. That's a lot. And I didn't know any of them. Okay. And I would say that I personally enjoyed working with every single one of them, including mm. the number one. And that was a very interesting one because there were two directors in mm. the very first episode. Yeah. And it seems that they work together all the time. Mm. When you go in just uh, listening, not letting yourself get ahead of yourself, yep. I think it makes things better. I had a favorite episode. Mm. I don't know whether or not it's because of the scene. Mm. It could be. The scenes were with Un Chuan. Mm. Mm. And I loved working with her mm. as well. Mm. And in that particular episode, we had a few scenes together. Mm. And it was under this director called David Pachapa. I loved working with him. Mm. I also loved working with Dan Minahan, mm. uh, who continues to be somebody that every now and then, you know, we will say hi to each other on mm. text. Okay. How do you calm yourself? If I'm an actor, you know, doing mostly Singapore things and all that, and then you, you go on, a, on the Marco Polo set, I think I'll be frightened shitless, you know. So how do you yeah. calm yourself into, is it, uh, working on theatre in front of a lot of people that conditioned you or was there stress being on such a production? Um, I'm so lucky in that one, I think by the time I did Marco Polo, I had worked with so many different people in theatre and television yep. here in Singapore that working with a whole new bunch of people is something that I'm used to. Yep. Okay, that, that's one thing. Mm. Secondly, the character that I was cast in, I really felt a clear voice inside my head. Okay. And when you have a clear voice, in a sense, it gives you a sort of calm and confidence mm. to walk onto the set yep. and to see how you can enhance this voice 
uh, clarify this voice with everybody else that you're working with. Mm. The wonderful thing about um, working on many international sets mm. is that by the time they cast you and by the time you're on set, in my own experience, it only serves everybody mm. that they help you to bring out the best in yourself. Okay. And that is very calming for mm. everybody. Mm. So the minute I walked on the Marco Polo set, whether or not it is for costume fitting or whether or not it's for an acting rehearsal mm. or for shoot, mm. everybody is there to not just bring out the best in you, everybody is helping everyone. Okay, that's good. And that is very calming for me. You just suddenly focus on the work. Okay, uh, but I also think that uh, for you... Uh, being in the limelight and maybe being the focus of you know fifty people, hundred people, uh, is not as daunting to you. I think uh, that yeah. stage fright is. Uh, yeah, yeah. I have felt, and even recently, I mm-hmm. have felt many times intimidated mm-hmm. by something. Mm-hmm. But maybe you are right. It is my character that. I am reacting to something mm. that is actually happening in front of me that suddenly intimidates me. I did an audition for How to Get Away with Murder. Mm. Um, and it was the worst audition I had ever done in my life mm-hmm. because I went in there and for some strange reason, even though I felt very prepared mm. and I was auditioning for uh, the role of a lawyer mm. and for anybody that has watched How to Get Away with Murder, you will see that, you know, Sonder rhymes, everybody speaks brick next speed yep. I was very prepared but for some strange reason when I did the first take of the audition mm. I tripped over a word mm. I was like oh okay sorry sorry um, can I do that again and then of course everybody was very nice and then they said yeah, yeah of course you know okay. yeah just do it again I tripped over the same word oh again oh my goodness I tripped over the same word again the third time then it became a and problem. you know by the <laughs> yeah by the third time Oh my God, Gavin, I was like, I'm dying. I just want to, I just want to shrivel up and die. I want to, I just want to be a genie and get back into my lamp. So intimidated. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly like what you said about like, you know, after, after a few rounds, you're just going into your head and you just can't get out. The funny thing is this, you know, I came out of there and immediately I called my manager and I told them, Oh my God, you know, they probably think that, who is this woman from Crazy yeah, Rich Asians? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She can't even act. She can't even say a line, yeah. you know. She mm. can't even speak English. But strangely enough, mm-hmm. several months later, yep. the same casting people yep. gave me a job on Grey's Anatomy, which uh-huh. they also cast. Nice. And I got that job. <laughs> so, you know, you just never know what yep. these people are thinking when they're looking at you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I guess my story is just try and get over it. So when you finally got that job in Grey's Anatomy, how, how, how did you... I mean, that's a seminal uh, TV series. I mean, everybody will die to be on that. So how, how was the feeling? It was very lovely. All the leads, they were so nice. They were so down to earth. Mm. You know, so many of them had been on for so many years, you mm. know really really nice Grey's Anatomy Studio called Perfect Studios mm. in 
Los Angeles has a lot of history in it. Mm. And you can see that everybody looks at this studio like their home. Because <laughs> it's kind of like a day job. Because it's gone on for so long, right? Yep. People come in, they do their work, and everything is under SAG rules. Mm. So you, um, you shoot until a particular time. If I'm in the last scene of the day, I clean off my makeup in my trailer and then I'm standing by the side of the road waiting for my lift. Yep. And then you see the DOP sort of like driving off and they all wave to you and they say, bye. People think that it's all about stardom or whatever, mm-hmm. but many more times than not, it isn't. It is about, you know, a really good job. Mm. Yeah. Just to be on the Grace Anatomy set. Nah. They had their own like special prop people. You need uh, medical expertise. Mm. So there was this particular woman mm. who used to be a nurse and she's been doing medical dramas in her capacity as a medical expert mm. for film. Yep. Um, you know, for many, many years. Mm. That She knows camera. My particular character had um, a special type of operation that had to be done on my foot. Um, and she would know the procedure. But mm. she also knows camera angle. So mm. she will be wow. the one to actually teach the two actors, okay, here is how you angle your hand. Mm. And here is how you, you carry out this particular procedure. Mm. And can you imagine the actors just have to learn? Because <laughs> they play different doctors yep. that are experts in different things, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. So they have to learn everything. How to put on a respirator, how mm. to take out the respirator, yeah, how yeah. long the respirator is there. What's a typical work hour for like something like anatomy? Is it like eight to, to six or like what, what's a typical? Um, I, I know they follow SAG rules mm. um, and they follow them very strictly. Mm. Um, I, I better not say anything because and oh, maybe it has maybe to be wrong. Google. <laughs> okay, if the call time for a particular reason is this time, then after something like six hours, it has to be lunch. And then oh, lunch has okay. got to be, you know, right. one hour. <laughs> and then, do you know what I mean? And then after okay, this okay. amount of hours, it's got to be break. And then okay. after this amount of hours, it's got to be dinner. You know, blah, blah, blah. So lunch doesn't necessarily mean 12 or lunchtime. You know? oh, lunchtime okay. can also be, I mean, depending on when you start. And, I mean, there are all these rules. In my particular episode, I had to get certain prosthetic things done on my leg, which mm. was an experience in itself because I went to this, prosthetic house that did all the marble stuff so mm. when I walk through the door I'm looking at and they did the fish soup in the shape of water okay so imagine wow. you walk anyway they did my prosthetic leg to be operated on yep um, and they were very strict about time because in my particular episode there is a little boy character mm. who had to do a brain tumor operation <laughs> okay. so they needed to do prosthetics on him mm. and there are these child actor rules and regulations that Mm. are very, very much more strict. Mm. And so they were very strict on me Mm. as an adult because they really needed time to do this very intricate head Mm. prosthetic for him that Mm. was going to take a lot of other time. And they knew that they have this amount of time for him as a child actor Mm. and this amount of time for me as an adult. All these things really, I nerd out over them. I think it's really (laughs) great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe the final thing that maybe uh, that you were yanked off from, which is Kung Fu. What little yeah. can we share? Like, is this the first time you're working in Vancouver? 
And then maybe whatever you can tell us on, you know, uh, working on the project. The best thing about working on Kung Fu, even though the coronavirus stepped in right mm. at the last week and we had to close, mm. it was my first time working on a major pilot mm. for a major platform yep. like CW, mm. Warner TV, yep. Berlanti Productions. They do mm. Riverdale mm. and they do uh, Flash, they mm. do Arrow, they do Sabrina. Mm. We actually stepped into the same team of people, the same set, the same studio mm. that Sabrina had just left. So all the Sabrina things were still all around and we got to walk around <laughs> all the Sabrina sets. The best thing was that it was my first experience as a regular cast on a major pilot. The newness of being a part of a team to create something to hopefully persuade the powers that be to pick it up mm. is very invigorating. I think the energy of shooting the pilot that yep. is going to be so good mm. and a story that nobody has done before. So you're not doing season 16 of Grey's Anatomy. Yep. You're doing the very first episode of Grey's Anatomy. You have no idea whether or not all these actors are going to get mm. along. You have no idea whether yep. or not the script is going to work. Mm. There are so many uncertainties. The way they treated me as a regular cast, the way they, the showrunner Christina Kim and the producers, mm. as well as the director, yep. they all talk to you like an equal. Mm. What do you think of this? What do you feel? And I felt so included. I mean, it was all new and every single day was exciting and I can't wait to go back together with this group of people and now we're constantly talking to each other on another major WhatsApp group <laughs> like the Crazy Vacations WhatsApp group which okay. still carries on until today. Did you remember watching it, the original ones? Oh my God. <laughs> you know, I did, I, I did, was, I remember. I had a terrible crush on David Carradine <laughs> yeah. and I watched Every single yes, yes, episode. Yes, I remember. And yeah. here is something, you know, that is very interesting about this last one and a half years working a lot in the United States. Two of my father's favorite shows mm. were Kung Fu and Magnum P.I. <laughs> oh, and somehow I got myself on both of these reboots. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, I, I very often look into the sky and go, hey, dad, you know, yeah. you know are you happy? <laughs> yeah, that's such a charmed uh, career, actually. Even when I first met you and then worked with you and all that, I know you're very generous, right? And But for young new directors and actually this podcast is for the young upcoming or wanting to start uh, to become directors what what kind of advice would you give these new directors hoping to be able to work with you um the first thing i want to say is for anybody who wants to work with me please you know um no, no matter your degree of experience yep because i am one of those sort of people where i think it is a project and a character that I am drawn to, it doesn't matter to me the budget mm. or how famous you are. Mm. I I will do it, mm. you know, and I will make time for it. Mm. Um, secondly, you know, I feel that it is so important for all of us to keep believing and doing our part to continue to ensure that this industry carries on. Mm. And what that means is it doesn't mean that you, that every single thing that you do is successful. Mm. 
Yep. It doesn't mean that every single thing you do is a uh, big budget. Mm. It doesn't mean that everything that you do is full time. Mm. You can be juggling three jobs. Mm. You can be driving Grab mm. or whatever. But it's just important that whatever capacity, not just as a director, that you are still doing it. Yep. Because the worst thing that could happen is that you just give up. Mm. You know, if you love it enough, please find time to do it and find a way to do it because we need everybody. Yep. I mean, that's the best thing that I can say. And, and don't be so results-oriented. I, I think just basically find the strength to continue putting time into the capacity that you want within this industry and continue to do it Mm. in the best way that you think you can. Okay. That sounds like great advice. And to get you will be Fly Entertainment, right? Well, <laughs> that would be a great start. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, yes, please go to Fly or, you know, to tell you the absolute truth. Mm. My email is on my Instagram, which is at Kenghua, mm. at K-H-E-N-G-H-U-A. Mm. And the only social media, and it is a social media that I love, is mm. my Instagram. Yep. Please, you know, uh, go into my Instagram if you want to contact me and mm. if you... And I remembered that you were so happy to work. You were just telling me before, I think there was two, three years back or something, oh, you're working with this bunch of like very young people and like, you know, they were, their energy. And so I know that you are really very generous with like, you know, uh, working with different people, young people, young ideas. So um, Young, old, I mean, whatever, <laughs> you know, as long as it is a project and a character that speaks to me, mm. I'm in, mm. you know, I'm in, you know. Okay. And a team, I think that is how I make my decisions. Mm. Uh, a story, um, a character, mm. and something about the team mm. that speaks to me, I'm in. Um, since this is for the circuit breaker period, uh, you'll be here until, uh, is there a timeline? You know, um, right now it's kind of open-ended. Yeah, yeah, everyone um, is. <laughs> so I have no timeline to work with. Mm. Uh, so, hey, anything is possible. <laughs> okay, uh, thanks so much, uh, Kingwa. It's been nearly two hours plus. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, thanks a <laughs> but lot. But so Kevin. much, so much. And I'm going to break it up into different episodes and I'm trying to put everything in because everything is uh, so inspiring. And uh, I mean, we have worked together in different capacities and... Uh, um, you know, a lot of times I also tell my uh, students before and and uh, even a lot of other people that wants to do directing, I just say that don't don't get seduced by the Hollywood kind of way because you're never going to get do that. You know, why don't just be realistic and just... But you are <laughs> basically a shining example of not listening to me that, you know, uh, your Hollywood dreams can come true. Okay, but I really have to step in here to clarify oh, okay. that I never had I never had a Hollywood dream. Okay. You know, I only followed projects and opportunities mm. that I was drawn to. Okay. I mean, don't forget I'm 57 years old. Mm. Okay. Young. Yeah, no. I urge every young creative to just look at what is in front of you. As opposed, I, I don't buy into this whole thing called the big break. Mm. 
because mm. you're, you're only as good as your last project. Mm. Um, and you certainly don't need the extra pressure upping your last project. I think you only should pressurize yourself to make sure that whatever is in front of you, whether or not it's a part-time job, or whether or not it's a being a mother, mm. or whether or not it is a Steven Spielberg film, mm. that if it is something that's in front of you right now, just try to do it the best that you can and see where that leads you. I okay. urge everybody to do that. Yep. Okay, that's okay. a great advice. Thanks a lot, Thank you. Kevin. Thanks, Bye. Bye.